Hello. Hello. That's noise. I can hear you now. Can you hear me? I don't know what was wrong. I had to get down on my hands and knees and play with my computer. <laughs> we we've all been there, haven't we? I, you know, sometimes sometimes we have to sink to those levels to get what we want, Paddy. Yeah. <laughs> sink spelt like NSYNC. Just like NSYNC. I think that's exactly what they did. They got down on their hands and knees to get what they wanted. Yeah. Wouldn't we? Yeah. have such fabulous haircuts, which probably cost them hundreds of dollars. And they could only get a musician's salary. Yeah. I wouldn't mind having, you know, Justin Timberlake's level of fame and acceptance and critical acclaim based on making songs that sound like Michael Jackson album tracks. <laughs> well, he's done very well as a Michael Jackson impersonator, hasn't he? Yeah. You know, he hasn't just played, you know, at county fairs and, you know, the other places that such impersonators might play. He's done fairly well. He's been on television. He has. He, he was on Eurovision, even though he's not a Europe person. He's not a Europe. It was quite weird, wasn't it? Seeing seeing an alien there. Yeah. An alien in, in the Europe saying, oh, gee, I don't understand your... Euro European ways. <laughs> <laughs> Your European ways. European ways. Yeah, they'd have to miss miss say um, Europe, wouldn't they? How are you anyway? Yeah. I'm good. It's nice to see your face. It's nice to hear your voice. Yeah, it's been quite a while. We're, it looks um, like you're in some kind of attic there. Yeah, this is our top floor. Um, looks good. Sort of you got one of those windows where you pull the thing and then it folds down. I always like those windows. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's very hot. It's next to the boiler, so it's very, very warm up here. Um, but yeah, this is our spare bedroom and office, which is absolutely massive, actually. So both Sarah and I have got a desk in here, and there's a double futon, and there's a double bed. So very it's, nice. Um, pretty big, yeah. So there's just a load of washing behind me at the moment, which isn't very uh, sexy podcast recording environs but make do i think it's, it's good, know, for the, big, good for the sound my wet pants yeah <laughs> not in that way <laughs> they're, they're, they're wet from from derbyshire water that's gone through the washing machine not because i'm pleased to see you oh what i thought you'd just been out no, in the I've rain stopped. in just your pants just crying yeah it said people couldn't see my tears so i thought of seeing you tonight yep but yeah, we're now we're now all um, settled in, and uh, yeah, happy to be back. Yeah, that's how, great. Uh, how have you been? Yeah, not too bad. And I um, I set the date for handing in my thesis, so that's that's happening. Oh, fantastic! That's good. It's going to happen day. on the the fifth of August this year, so exactly a Shit. year before my wedding. To the day. Wow. To the day. Wow. So, so figured, how long has it taken you to do that? Um, like a little under four years, I guess. So it would be, it'll be four that's years insane. in September. That's insane. that's insane for a part-time PhD while also holding down a, f a full-time job. Yeah, holding down while it's trying, trying to escape. <laughs> trying to, to buck away like a bronco. Yeah, exactly. no, I, I always think that expression, like holding down, it makes me think of when... You know, if like a bird gets into your house, you're supposed to like throw a tea towel over it and then hold it down. Yeah. It always makes me think of that, like it's a it. bird that's going to fly away. See, but I've always thought if I was a bird 
And so, so if I, say I was a human-sized bird. Imagine that if you would for a moment. <laughs> I've imagined that or many a, a times. <laughs> a, large, a large different human-sized bird. And somebody threw it. I was panicked for whatever reason. I was in a building I didn't like. And someone threw a duvet over me. That wouldn't calm me down. That would get me more riled up. I'd get claustrophobic. I'd, I might be scared of the dark. Well, I mean, uh, apparently it makes it them it makes them stop flapping. That's what I've heard. I've never been able to test this theory, but a magpie did come down our chimney a couple of years ago. Shit, how did you deal with that? Did I tell you about that? No, did you shoot it? (laughs) Your gun? (laughs) Yeah, I I have lots of guns in my house. Because you know how I like like American things? I've got lots of guns. You do quite quite like North American (laughs) things, so it it stands to reason you'd like assault rifles. Yeah, and the right to wield them. Yeah, but no, I, I did not shoot it. You're looking um, at you're... now. What did you? So what did you do with it? Um, well, it was in the the dining room. So you know, at the back. So it's got the two doors that open out into the back garden. So I think Claire, yes. Claire was home, and I ca- I came home from work to deal with it because it got down. It ca- came down through the chimney, and was like scrabbling around in the fireplace. So it was obviously like inside the fireplace, uh-huh. and it was livid, but it couldn't get out through the chimney. And it was like freaking us out. So I, I got, I think I got a tea towel or no, I got a towel. So it was quite big. Remembering this thing that I'd heard somewhere about how you're supposed to throw a towel over it if it comes out. So all I did was I opened the back door. Well, first I opened the back door and then I laid like a trail of breadcrumbs out from the fireplace to the back door and out into the garden. That's and extremely then, elaborate. yeah, well, I, what, what I hoped was that it would come out of the fireplace and, you know, follow the trail out into the garden. Um, so I, I pulled the grate off the fireplace and then I, like, ran away, assuming that it would immediately fly out and start pecking my eyes and, you know. So um, is, that the, is that the only reason that you wear glasses? Is just in case an animal tries to peck your eyes out? Yeah, that's why I, I've never gotten contact lenses. Yeah, they do. No, yeah. well, they, they wouldn't do that. A bird's beak would slice through them like cheese. This is this is true, yeah. Cheese specs. A soft cheese. A soft cheese. Soft cheese. No, cheese. Cheese contact lenses. Camembert, I would say, or a brie that's been left on the side for a couple of hours to let it breathe. Ugh. I would say that's, that's the kind of cheese that the, the beak would cut through. Yeah. Anyway, so you managed to get this, this um, magpie character outside. Yeah. Well, I, I assumed that it was immediately going to come flying out of the grate at me. So I was sort of crouching in the corner of the room, holding up the towel, going, please don't peck me, please don't, don't fly on my face. And then nothing happened. Like It was dead silent for a, a good couple of minutes. I was just standing there sort of watching it. And eventually it just sort of hopped out of the grate really slowly. And and it wasn't flying or flapping or anything. Um, so it had obviously been down there for, for a while, like for most of the day. Um, and was really kind of disoriented and tired and whatever. So it just it hopped out and just kind of stood there looking at me. Um, and it was quite eerie, actually, in a way. Um, but then I, you know, I, I thought, oh, the poor thing, you know, it's 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 obviously in a bad way. But I watched it, and it did eventually follow the trail and hop out into the garden. Um, and then it's it was mm. in the garden, sort of hopping about for about an hour, and then eventually it sort of got better and flew away. So I'm glad that it was okay. But yeah, when you hear that, that kind of noise behind a chimney, that's freakish. Did it change you as a man to hold a bird's gaze like that? I think it did. You know, it really stared me out. 
it was, it was definitely a contest. Yeah. Yeah. Did it teach you its secrets for saving his life? See, I'm, t- I'm, I'm um, disappointed that it didn't transmog- transmogrify into a wizard. <laughs> if, a, if a magpie came down my chimney, then I think that's, that's really what I'd be hoping. I'd be waiting for it to turn back into a wizard, um, possibly until it starved to death. I don't know. Because <laughs> you, you wouldn't feed the wizard. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, no, have, him, you wouldn't have him around for dinner. <laughs> it's a wizard. The wizard's probably got, you know, some herbs in his little pouch. <laughs> you know, wizards have their pouches. And they keep their herbs and maybe a little sandwich or, or some watsits in there or something. And, you know, well, I wouldn't feed him. He's a wizard. He could turn into a bird. Surely he's got some way to procure food, uh, procure food for himself. Yeah, probably. Okay. If he's got herbs as well, he's probably going to smoke those and then he's going to be high and then he's going to get the munchies. So he's probably used to eating a lot I of food. Say he, uh, I didn't say he was a smoking wizard. I didn't say he was a, like a hedge wizard. He wasn't like Radagast <laughs> the Brown with his with his weed. A hedge wizard? <laughs> a hedge wizard. What That's do, a real thing. What do they do? Do they make hedge funds? No, they literally live in hedges. Well, they did. It's a real thing. Hedge witch and hedge, hedge wizard. Hedge wizard. I they have were, never heard of a hedge they were, wizard. They were traveling. They were medieval traveling alchemists and, and soothsayers. And because they'd be near hedges and stuff, because they'd always be traveling. Look it up. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'll look that up and I'll put it in the show notes. But I have never heard of a hedge wizard. And I have heard of quite a few types of wizard. You know. Well, I, I, well, I think it was when I played warhammer or something like that when i was a uh, early teens and i saw there were these hedge wizards and i was like what the hell's that so i looked it up and it's uh, it's yeah. a medieval medieval soothsayer or alchemist or herbalist yeah probably well I didn't smoke weed because weed wasn't naturalized in the uk at that point but um yeah yeah they were probably eating mag- guess- magic mushrooms though they were well we went for a hike uh, a couple of months ago up on the on the Derbyshire Moors, and there were loads of uh, psilocybin mushrooms um, just growing everywhere. Wow. And um, we did not pick any and take any because I wasn't confident that I had <laughs> I had identified them correctly enough. Yeah. Um, die a lonely death on, <laughs> on the top of the Derbyshire Moors. But, um, that would be a terrible way yeah, to go. Yeah. You're, it would be a shit way to... I mean, it's a beautiful place, but it would be... Making a mistake like that would be a shit way to go. Yeah. Um, you're looking quite bearded. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, have a, I haven't trimmed it for, for a while. I've just been a bit lazy, really. But I'm, I'm quite enjoying it. So we're well done for being I I think you look lovely. Thank it's you. Sort of, it sort of gives you... It's, it's sort of like the mating pouch on some sort of bird, you know, when they enlarge their throat. Yeah. It sort oh, of yeah, makes you look yeah. a bit more... I gotta work on my uh, more than usual my mating calls. Oh yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want to hear your mating calls. I'll tell you that for free. <laughs> I'll tell you that for free. I think it would just be a low whine. It would just be. I think they're low whine like. No, just a low in volume rather than pitch. Okay. Um, just sort of like a pathetic whimper, like a like a door creaking open. <laughs> like that, <laughs> you just hear it across the board, and yeah. Claire, Claire, would, Claire would have to follow the call of of the paddy. Yeah. Anyway, so 
Well, I, I actually wrote some subjects down. Yeah, you've you've actually you've actually prepared homework. some st some stuff. Finally, I well, don't have to do I all do the heavy lifting. <laughs> well, to be fair, you usually say, "Oh, I've got ten subjects," and we talk about half of one for an yeah. hour, and then we go, "Actually, oh, better go now." That's good because um, I I think we yeah, probably I, will never run out of things to talk about. But I'm glad that you've written some stuff down. So hit me with your rhythm stick. Well, actually, no. Well, this, uh, when I say, like, I have got, I've written some subjects down. I've realized the first one is essentially just getting you to participate in my PhD. Um, Sweet. Well because, well, because I've been, a lot of the work that I'm doing, without going into boring detail for listeners about what I'm doing for my PhD, which can be found out elsewhere on the, on the internet. Um, is that on your website? I'm Could doing that in the show notes. There's a GitHub page. I'll send you the link. Cool. Um, which is uh, which I'm using anyway. So w w a lot of what I'm looking at at the moment is uh, toys and toys that people had as children or the imaginary games that you played either with toys or not when you uh, when you were young. Um, and I just wanted to ask you about your favorite toys and sort of the games you, you played with them and what sort of what sort of stuff you got up to play-wise when you were a kid because it's always i mean it's interesting anyway but i think it's it would be very interesting for me um for my research you're right actually that kind of that kind of stuff isn't something that you necessarily get around to talking about with everyone you you, you meet someone you're just talking to you go what did you play with as a child but actually i think it's it's very revealing um, I'm the, only, the only um outlet that i've found, i've seen for it is i i'm sorry we're going to talk about buzzfeed as we have for every single episode of this podcast it's all right but but the only outlet i've seen are the 90s nostalgia things it's like oh don't you all remember <laughs> yeah. when we played with Polly pockets or mighty maxes when we were when we were 10 um I felt like yeah. what you're asking was more specific than just a just a bit of nostalgia content. Though I think you're asking specifically no, yeah. about imagination and about imagining things rather than being stimulated. Is that right? Well, this, yeah. This is so. This is the thing. Yeah, those that uh, that Buzzfeed reference is not the sort of thing that I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about yeah about imagination and imaginary play. So using toys as sort of totems for enacting play. Um, and whether you believe that your toys have personalities, uh, whether you believe that they were alive. It's, I've been reading a lot of uh, research on this recently and talking to psychologists, and it's, it's mm. fascinating. But it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting because we've never talked about that. We've talked about our childhoods, I'm sure, a fair amount over our, our friendship. But, um, yeah, yeah, I've never asked you that specifically. You're right. No, I, I definitely thought that all of my toys had personalities and were real and like you got to remember, for people our age, you cannot underestimate the importance of Toy Story. I mean, that came out in what ninety four, ninety five, maybe. Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, so yeah. we would have been seven, I guess, probably around seven, which I think is the kind of age yeah. where you're probably starting to question that stuff. And deep down, you probably really know that your toys don't really have personalities, but you want to believe it, so you hold on to it. And then seeing Toy Story yeah. just, just crystallised that for me. It was like, yeah, of course they're real and they're talking about me behind my back in a good way. You know, that kind of thing. But I had, <laughs> I had a lot of cars. I remember How do you I know it was big... a good way? Well, I, I don't. Cars. I don't know it was a good way. Yeah. I had a lot of, a lot of toy cars. Um, 
when I was, I think when I was very small, I really loved the toy cars. Uh, my gra my grandparents on both sides would get them for me, and I was very good at remembering the models and the names of them and that kind of thing. So I used to drive them around and like race them at each other. And I think they they had names and personalities and stuff, but I can't remember any of them. And I was big into trains as well. So they had the Brio train set first, the wooden one. Oh man, Brio, yeah, so good. In fact, I've still got it. It's under the bed in the spare room. So the next time you come, you, we can play with it if you want. Oh shit. Have some great fun with Brio. Yeah, I love it. And my uh, my grandma, my grandmother on my mum's side used to pick me up from primary school. So from age four to maybe age eight or nine, maybe it probably wasn't for the whole period, but most weeks she would pick me up, and we'd go from my school um, into to Kingston, into the centre of town, and we'd go to the toy shop and we'd buy one piece for the for the Brio train set every week. For you know, oh. however long it was, term time. So even if it was just one tiny bit of the track or whatever, eventually by the end of term, you've got enough to make a round circle. And you'd, uh, I remember the day you'd, you'd get the engine, that would be really exciting. And then you might get a new carriage and they would magnetize and you could roll them around. That that was incredible. Just imagining the kind of the long journey that it was going on through. I'd imagine it was going through some like Arctic landscape or whatever. I think that even at that age, yeah. I think I was really into like, you know, Canadian landscapes. I don't know where I'd seen them, but there'd obviously been some film where there'd been like huge, huge pine trees and mountains and stuff. And I always imagined that the trains were driving through those. That was cool. Mm. Did you have did, those? I, did, yeah, I had. We had. I had Brio, and um, yeah, Brio was Brio was the main one. I never really gone into scale electrics or anything like that. Um, I had a scale electric set that was my dad's from when he was a kid. And in fact, oh. we have still got it and it is ancient and it used to like give me electric shocks and it was so dodgy yeah. and it's got a loop, yeah, it's got a loop, the loop and the cars would never make it around the loop. No. They'd get no, like no, halfway no. and they'd just fall off. That always happened with scale electrics. I'm pretty sure it was never pat tested. I'm, I'm almost certain that, um, yeah. that it was extremely unsafe. Um, we had, um, I remember having Duplo before Lego and then shit tons of Lego. Yeah. I was quite into sort of action figures and um, sort of personified toys. And I think that's what I'm more interested in. Did you have personified toys? Um, I mean, obviously, I'm pretty sure every kid has some sort of teddy bear, whether it's a bear yeah. or not. It's some sort of soft, cuddly toy. Um did you have? Did you have personified toys that had that you felt had personalities or anything? Oh like god, that? yeah. I I had my my teddy bear, who was a bear, but I insisted that he was a dog because I was obsessed with dogs. Yeah. And I like I when I was young, I think or very small at some point, I like pulled all the stuffing out of him for no apparent reason, and very then nice. he ended up being just this rag. But I still carried him everywhere, and, and I slept with him every night until I must have been about. 13 or 14 even wow which is just kind of fucked up when you think about it but you were also a serial killer who had his rag that he talked to but you weren't yeah. you were just the young i'm not a serial um, killer this sounds normal now good 
That's what I want to hear. But um, you, you sounded abnormal before. That might have just been because I had a lot of um, jelly in my throat. I was eating jelly. Yeah. Did you did you ever used to when you were a kid get before the when it you just get the jelly cubes and just eat them out of the packet? No, I did not do that. Isn't that horrifically sweet? Yeah, I did. I used to do that sometimes. I think that explains quite a lot. Yeah, I, I think you've got jelly on the brain. Your brain is essentially an enormous pork pie. <laughs> I've always thought it. Are you saying that my head is made of pastry? I'm a pastry head. Yeah, it's, I think you have a pastry skull with jelly underneath and then a delicious pork brain. Delicious pork brain. That sounds like a ska band. <laughs> does does that like a ska band or, or a really lo-fi punk band? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Okay, so you thought Hamilton was okay and that's fine. It was fine. It was, it was fine. It, well, it was good. It was really good. Musicals aren't my sort of thing. Therefore... I judged it as fairly good for a musical. So it still sounded like a musical to you. You didn't. You didn't just think, "Oh, here's some some cool hip hop stuff." Because I, when I first listened to it, I didn't immediately think of it as being like a musical. I was just like, "This sounds like some fun songs." But um, well, I knew it was a musical. I guess I couldn't. I knew that they the songs were extremely narrative, like a musical song. Um, but I'm not sure I could have. If I just heard it on the radio. Yeah, it would have been interesting, but I didn't. And this is a, this is another thing: is what I mean about it being judged on its own merits as music. You can't possibly because everyone knows about Hamilton now because it's been so successful and rightly so because it's interesting. Um, but it's it's just not my cup of tea. Yeah, I'm um, I'm going to write a musical and force you to like it. You'll have to yeah. like it because you're my friend. I. I, I've hated everything you've ever done. <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah, you hate you hated on all of my work. I actually, I've actually tried to sabotage your career quite a lot for the good of humanity. Really, I hadn't, I hadn't noticed. Yeah, enjoy your viva. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. I think the external examiner is a large Doberman. <laughs> oh, my least favorite breed of dog. The Doberman? No, no, they're not my least favourite. My least favourite is bull terriers, you know, the ones that look like sharks. If my external, oh, if the external examiner was one of those, that would be might, terrible. He might be a, a leading comic scholar. You don't know. That's, <laughs> Just because he's got a shark face, you don't know. <laughs> I, know. I think they're grossly misunderstood dogs. Yeah. That, yeah. If, if it was a silken wind hound, I'd be okay with that. I still don't believe that breed is real. It's it's a it's a very niche type of sight hound. So you rich, I saw a borzoi yesterday when I was walking yeah, through rare. Camden Town. Yeah, and it's then sort I, of like seeing a supermodel. It is. They are sort of like yeah, the the sort of the Naomi Campbells of the dog world. They are. <laughs> I was going to say Naomi Klein. Then I always get those Naomi two Klein names mixed is up. Different. Different sort of lady. Yeah, wonderful, yeah. wonderful Canadian author. She's very good. Yeah, yeah. I, in fact, I referenced her in a paper uh, about two weeks ago. Did you? Uh, yeah, from No Logo. Good She's um, she knows she knows her shit. Um, in fact, I wanted to ask you about uh, your opinion on all of this um, academic striking stuff, which you must be fairly up on. 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm obviously very much in, in favour of the strike. I read somewhere today that I don't know whether this was a figure that applies to just the people who are striking or certain institutions or the whole country, but that 49% of academics are on short-term, you know, insecure contracts. So whether yeah. that's a zero-hours contract or whether it's just a contract for a year or just per module or per term or just to do marking on an hourly rate or whatever it is. I think that's, I think that's fucked up. I think it's particularly fucked up in an industry that's offer, operating at a massive surplus. Yeah. In the billions, you know, the, the, the profit of UK universities is in the billions. You know, it's an incredibly thriving industry and it's thriving on the back of, of fucking hardworking people. But, you know, obviously, Obviously, universities are businesses, and they have to be run as businesses. But I really do think, and a lot, I think this about a lot of universities that I've encountered, um, their primary function, which is to provide education and the opportunity to grow um, for students, is being put to one side in favour of being glorified shopping centres. Absolutely, 100%. It's like these days they see... You're supposed to, as a student, see yourself as a consumer, you know, rather than, you know, someone who's there to get an education. And I felt like when we were at university, it was turning that way, certainly. But, you know, there were people going, I'm paying this much money. But this was pre-9,000. I think that was the tipping point, wasn't it? It was all, I'm paying nine grand for this. So if I don't get these marks or if I don't get this or whatever, then it's my right as a consumer to do this. And I don't really see it that way, obviously at all. Well, as, as an academic, be. I think the value of it is completely different. But Well, in fact, I was reading an art, uh, or well, a, a commentary that um, our former tutor, Sam North had written a couple of years ago when he was going through his own turbulent time. Yeah. Good. And, um, as an academic. And he was saying, you know, there is a, there is a great misconception that, universities are like schools that you go in you pay your money and you get an education and then you come out the other side and get a good mark that's not what universities are for universities are to provide uh you with uh, experts and the facilities in order for you to make your own inquiries and grow in your own way to be almost like a mirror or a sounding board uh off which you can you can compare yourself and, and grow out of that. And um, obviously, since the nine th- the nine thousand pound thing came in, that's all changed because people are like so. I'm paying you nine thousand pounds to essentially grow myself. Well, that's bullshit. Um, I you know, and they want to treat it like a like an essay mill where they they get a good mark at the end of it yeah. because they money for it but that's not what universities are for universities are they're like vivariums they're 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 rarefied environments which give you an opportunity for three years to grow in a way that you wouldn't have that opportunity or or luxury they are a luxury any other time yeah it is a luxury but you've got to remember that our parents got to go for free so and that that used to be possible and yes I, i think now obviously things are very different the population is larger or whatever but you know, a, a, you know, a lot of my PhD is actually about this kind of thing and about how, you know, neoliberalism and the philosophy of that everything must be kind of a, a free market 
product as such that these kind of things can't be it's about you know the reduction of the public sector and things being operated for a public good you know if you were to change i don't want to get all jeremy corbyn on you but if you were to change the structure of taxation and you know how money goes into the treasury or whatever in some way i think he did some kind of calculation where it was like if you raised corporation tax by one percent you could pay for all universities to operate for free or something like that so that kind of thing just shows you that there's like a fundamental imbalance towards that kind of thing. And it, it, it I should don't be get, I don't People should be getting to, to, get to free. Into spe for specifics. But I just can't see how that could possibly be the case. I mean, the cost of... The cost of educating the number of people who want to go to university now and who are sort of requiring... It's not just a want. And it's changed from being a luxury. And it's now a necessity. If For, for you know, the top two or, or two-thirds of the job market, you have to go to university for it even if it's kind of useless for you really yep. in terms of your it's just something you're putting on your piece of paper to get you the job that you would be able to do without going to university you know the number of people we know who are doing jobs which their time at university have no bearing on and that's not to dispute that i mean i'm not saying that time was wasted but the idea that it's necessary, it was necessary for them to go to university to get that job and that without a university degree on their CV, they wouldn't have got that job is ludicrous. Yeah, and, and there's a fundamental imbalance there as well, you know, whereas it's all saying, oh, you've got to leave school, you've got to go to university, you've got to get a degree, you've got to do this and that. Well, actually, most jobs, you don't, need, you don't need the degree at all. It's not really about the degree unless it's a specifically vocational thing. You probably could it's, be doing that job anyway. It's, it, it depends what we mean by need, isn't it? It's a, there is a consensus in society that you need a, a good university degree to do, you know, maybe sixty percent of the jobs in the in the UK jobs market, or fifty percent maybe. But it's that that's not the case. You know, actually, you don't need to. And this is what I mean. I'm not sure if it is. I mean, obviously, there is a big. I mean, I'm talking about glorified shopping centres, right? Of course, I'm talking about a neoliberal imperative. But it's it's not even that case. It's just that there is such a pressure for these people to go. There, there, there's no way we could go back to grants um, because we just couldn't afford it. And I, just, I mean, I haven't seen this thing you've talked about with Corbyn. And if we raise corporation tax by 1%, we could pay for everyone who wants to go to university. I don't know if that's true. It's just something that I read in like one of these I'd like to see those numbers because I, I, I think that it's past that point now. You know, I, I don't think... You could never make public make public sector again. University, you know, when our parents went to university, they were a minority, and the government was trying to promote clever people to go to university to get skills that they would that to then you know to promote to promote you know white collar industry. Yeah, and um, that's not that's not the world we live in anymore. Um, what needs to change is the importance of university to every facet of life or every facet of working life and to say hey there are loads of people here who don't have to spend all this money but uk universities would lose out on so much income if you said okay well probably half of the people who are now going to university really don't need to and if you change that the university would be like shit well we're missing out on millions or billions of pounds um and so what as what seems to always happen is status quo is maintained because it's profitable 
it's profitable right now, even if yeah. it's damaging other things. If you have the heft to keep an industry going. It's profitable right now, but the student loans company is still losing money every single year, paying that money yeah. to the universities. It's, it's ludicrous. The, the student loans, I mean, obviously it's benefited us because, you know, we got, we got an education out of it and it's a very, it's an extremely lenient payback system. But it's it's ludicrous if you think about it. Yeah, but if someone's graduating now, having paid nine grand um, a year, so they've they've got you know what's three times nine, you know, twenty seven, twenty seven thousand pounds, and that's just the tuition fees. Yeah, <laughs> what's that about a PhD? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, they're coming out now and they, they don't start paying that back until they're earning 25 grand and the, the job market is rubbish. The student loans company is never going to get that money back. There is no way that that can... I can't see it lasting more than a few years because, before they declare a genuine real crisis in higher education funding and there has to be some kind of shift towards getting that money from where there is money, which is, you know, in corporations and big business. But that's not going to take the form of tax. That's going to take the form of we need your money, so you're going to give us money, and you know it's going to you're going to be going to Pepsi University or whatever the fuck, you know. Well, and there's all this stuff about fake universities as well. All the, all these because there's so much distance learning now with the internet. Um, there's all these fake universities propping up, and you have people paying thousands of people. I don't know in the Philippines paying thousands of pounds over three years for what ends up being a bogus degree. Yeah, terrible. And, you know, it's such a cash cow. It's such a cash cow. But it's a cash cow with spindly legs, as you say. I mean, mm. it's an industry. This is why I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm quite against going into academia um, as a career because it just seems like you're treated appallingly and the bottom's going to fall out of it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, e even if you can get a good, like, kind of lecturer, reader, or job, postdoc, or whatever, you know, you'll still end up working, you know, all the time, basically. And, you know, your students will just treat you like any other product that they buy. The university management will force you to bring in more and more money through research grants. Yeah, the whole thing is just completely out of whack, really. So, you know, I, I, lo I love I it and so. I want to lecture, but I don't know that that's ever going to happen, really. Not unless it fundamentally changes. I think, I think it, you, you, you are prime material for the industry. I think you would do very, very well. But um, it's precarious. Um, yeah. And, you know, but, but then again, there's so many industries like that. You do anything that was once public sector or was, you know, it's, it's people are on rolling contracts, you know, the heritage mm -hmm. sector. I'm looking at going into there are people on rolling contracts you're constantly having to get grants you're yep. doing two people your charity sector which I worked in is like that apart from it well there's some parts of it are like that um, so I don't think the solution is necessary to leave academia or not to pursue it I think we are living in a difficult time financially and especially for lots and lots of industries and uh, we've just got to weather it yeah for sure how do you feel about the concept of a universal basic income? You ever thought about that? You know, it's an idea that's gaining traction. People are writing papers, articles and stuff. So that is a 
guaranteed level of pay that everyone so is paid yeah that, ev ev that everyone every citizen is paid a guaranteed income you know per week or per month or whatever by the state just for existing so like in theory you wouldn't have to work if you didn't want to but it would just be basic you know like minimum wage but it would be enough for you to to live on i suppose so it would replace any any existing welfare or state pension or anything like that would just become this one unconditional payment to everyone regardless but i mean surely that would be vastly unpopular because it's not means tested so you would say okay i'm paying my taxes and yes i'm getting i'm getting x this x amount basic but then it's also going to people who i don't think it should go to now obviously we still have that problem with uh benefits now but at least there is even though it's a broken system there is the notion that it's means tested and that the people who get benefits in theory need them um yeah so it would definitely be going to people who didn't need it is is the thing but i mean i don't know i think it's a it's a lovely ideal and i'm not saying it couldn't work but i don't know i don't know i think i think why why not just lower I don't know. I would say, why not just lower taxes? Because then, how do you pay for roads and hospitals and stuff? But if you're, but if you're, it paying, then becomes Pepsi Hospital. But then, if you're, if you're paying out a proportion, a large proportion, surely, of the money that you're getting in for tax, you would be getting in through tax anyway. Surely, it's the same thing. You either take in tax and then pay it out and have to also pay for an infrastructure to pay that out. Or you just collect less tax in the first place. And then you don't have to worry, you know, you're, you're creating a cycle of income, but then I suppose a lot of people, you know, people on uh, in a lower band of financially of society don't pay tax anyway, so that they wouldn't benefit from a lower tax rate. Yeah, which I feel like is, yeah, the personal allowance, as they call it, keeps going up every year. And I feel like that's kind of a bit of a con because it's saying that you, as someone on a on a very low income, you don't need to participate at all. You're just, you're just not really involved in tax at all. It's not something that should concern you, you poor oh, person. So you know? Oh, so that's interesting. So with the universal basic income, everyone would pay in, but everyone would get something out. Yeah. Right. Okay. And is it a flat rate across society? Or is I it think there are people are trying are looking at you know various models. It's obviously all just hypothetical, but I think the couple of places where they are actually starting trials, I think there's a province in Switzerland where they're starting it, and a, a county in Canada in Ontario somewhere they're trial they're trialing it, and I think it is just a basic flat rate, exactly the same for every single person. That's so, interesting. You know, if you. It's more, for me, I think it's just more about the security, you know, that if you lost your job, you'd, you'd be okay because you'd, ha you'd have an income. So if it took you a couple of months to find a new job, it, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't necessarily encourage people to not work because it wouldn't be like, you know, loads of money. You wouldn't be able to buy, you know, to buy loads of stuff, but you'd be able to live off of it, you know. But isn't that what we have with with benefits now? The idea is that the, the ideal of benefits is that it provides a safety net um, for people 
and that it's not enough to comfortably live on, but you but you can survive on it until you get back on your feet. I guess so, but that that doesn't actually end up working out, does it? Because the administration of it is so kind of ineffective and that you know job seekers allowance they're sanctioning all the wrong people and telling them they should be looking for a job 90 minutes away and yeah this this kind of thing and bureaucracy and the machine that behind that is extremely inefficient of course and i suppose i suppose an attract attraction of the universal basic income is that you would remove all of that evaluation that you would just say, well, you're getting a flat rate. We don't need you to come and check it. Out. Yeah, there's, there's no stig- stigmatization or I anything there. I can't ever see it happening just because of the very obvious complaints that every, the same as with the benefits culture, everyone's paying in and some people are cashing in and not re-contributing. But then it's interesting that everyone has to pay towards it, even if you... So that's it. So if you didn't have a job, say, and you were just living on your UBI, um, would you still... Ha- would you have to contribute back into the system from your UBI? I suppose so, yeah. I mean, it, it would be good to set it up that way so that everyone was paying back in somehow. But I don't know. There are various ways you could look at it, but I get. I guess it's more important that the tax is coming in to fund that from wherever that wealth exists in society. So whether that's corporations or, you know, that the, there would still be income tax and income earned above that, I guess. But you wouldn't mind that so much because you're already getting a guaranteed income. I mean, I think I, I personally would want that to be above, you know, a, a sort of a level of the benefits would now where it's like you can't live on it comfortably comfortably like i wouldn't want it i wouldn't want anyone to be living on it uncomfortably say i would want it to provide you know housing and food and you know all the basic things that people need to to live and to not worry about things yeah i wanted it i would want it to be enough to cover those things or let's say if you if you wanted to be an artist or you know if you wanted to make comic books or whatever and say there's no there's no money for that, or there's very little money to be paid for it. You could live off your UBI and just get bits of money here and there and pursue the things that you want to do. And there would still, I think, be people who wanted to be businessmen and to make a lot of money. And so many people would still be driven by money that I think fundamentally the human psyche would still drive enough people to make that money that it would go back into the system to pay for those people who didn't. But maybe I'm just being utopian. No, I think I, I agree that I don't think a lot would change in a people's everyday lives. You wouldn't have people going, oh, I'm going to quit work because I get a guaranteed income. Um, but that's that's the easiest criticism. It's that like, oh, everyone would immediately stop working and society would grind to a halt. Well, I don't think that's a fair criticism. It depends on how much the money is. I suppose there is one of the one of the you could argue i'm playing devil's advocate here but you could argue that one of the reasons that more people don't claim benefits is because it's a fucking nightmare yeah. to claim them. i mean i know well, we know people who have beat who have had to claim benefits for a little while when we were leaving university and stuff and i remember talking to them about i was very lucky i didn't have to um and talk to them about it and it was a nightmare you know it's it's almost like a full-time job dealing with the the job center or the you know revenue so it's 
so if you remove that barrier and say, well, you're going to be getting this money coming in, you don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to go to the job centre. You don't have to fill out all these forms. There is an argument there that people might go, oh, well, you know, I don't have to do anything for it. It's just about enough. Um, I don't know. I think... I don't know. I think it's a difficult. I think it's a difficult one. I, I think it's an intriguing idea, and the be- I, what I think personally, what I think time and effort should be spent on is making the job market more, creating more jobs. Yeah, it's making obviously. the job market more accessible to people uh, who haven't been to university, who are in deprived areas, who have spent time in prison, uh, who are disabled. I mean, the, the, this this thing about disability allowance and people claiming for disability allowance because they can't work. I mean, that's terrible. Yeah, we have the opportunity now that we have the internet for these people. I remember I worked at a literary agents for a while, and their chief reader was uh, a morbidly obese man who lived in Wales, and he, you know, they posted him out or they emailed him manuscripts, and he would read them and critique them, and he they paid him for that, and he didn't need to leave his house. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially as these days, um, geography is no longer our master. You know, you, you can work anywhere. Ninety percent of you know, at least white collar jobs, you just need your computer and you can do stuff like that. I mean, I go into the office every day, but really, I could do ninety five percent of my job from home. There are just well, certain exactly. things where I need to talk to people and I need to be in spaces. But yeah, and I still think I still think that 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 being you know with other hu- other human beings in your job is a, a preferable way to do it in a lot of cases but i think we're flexible enough that you you don't have you can have these non-traditional patterns of working without productivity or whatever it is being affected and i think that's where rather than trying to find ways to give everyone safety nets all the time though obviously we need a safety net and that needs to be preserved but the it's a symptom rather than the problem right is we need we need more jobs for more people we need income creation that's that's what we need that's what's gonna that's what's gonna make people happier because i'm not sure i i agree with the i i like the idea of artists not having to but then you come up against the inevitable criticism that people say well i'm we're, we're all paying in so that some people can make their make their shit music or make their <laughs> you know write a shit novel or whatever it is you know because Art's a very special case because it's so subjective. Um, and those inevitable criticisms, I mean, I don't think it's ever going to happen. In this country, certainly. I, I just can't see it. I don't know that um, it's ever going to happen, I but it's, it's very, it's, I found it a really interesting thing to, to, to think about. I t- talked about it a bit in the last chapter of my PhD as a thing that follows on from a number of books where people have gone, well, capitalism is, it looks like it might be failing. What's going to happen next? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's all big, big picture stuff. It's it's not looking at kind of the problems no, of now, just, which is that there are no jobs and everything's really expensive. It's it's it's. I feel like it's much bigger picture than that. It's people who are thinking about the yeah, fundamental way think, that society is structured. Yeah, I agree. I think that I think job creation is quite big, big picture as well, and saying how can we allow people to fulfil their lives. And and have fulfilling purpose in their lives, and that you know, making art is a job. 
you know, it, it is making it, it, it is a job. Um, and that's fulfilling. And obviously we want to be able to allow people to do that, even if their work isn't commercially viable, because commercial viability isn't the same as importance or attractiveness. I don't know. It's a very interesting thought experiment. I don't, I'm not completely against it. I think it's very interesting. Yeah. I'll be interested um, to see yeah, how we do the, that. the trials go. 